And then my daughter, who's who's um, actually had her first play. Did I tell you this? Had her first play produced when she was three and a half years old. She wrote one play and it got produced in America. And I'm like, oh my God. And I'm like, what's next? She's like, no, I've done it now. I'm moving on to the next thing. So- <laughs> Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a desk. Lights up on a podcast by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. Juanita Casrachawa. Rachel, and I'm in New York City. Hi, I'm Sadie Collins. I'll be reading Holly, and I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Hi, I'm Savannah Tejero. Uh I'll be playing Marie, and I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Lights up on an empty stage. We meet on Tinder. We met on Keepit.com. He approached me on LinkedIn. He's hot. So hot. Mildly attractive. And my loser boyfriend literally just let me for someone with more EQ. Like, I can't do mathematics. My therapist says the only way I'll get over my ex is by putting myself out there. I'm a married woman. So I swipe right. So I return his electronic kiss. So I accept his request and write, Okay, I'll mentor you. And we begin to text. He starts messaging me. We engage in a professional email relationship. His name is Stan? His name is Stan. I say it's business. I'll call you Stanley. Being older than me, he'll have the maturity and sexual experience, which is perfect for a relationship. Being the same age as me, he'll have that emotional maturity and spiritual experience, How perfect is that for a relationship? Being much younger than me, he'll have that immaturity and complete lack of experience, which is ideal for a mentee. He suggests that we meet at this little Little Italian Italian cafe. cafe. He's trying to pick me up. He's trying to pick my brain. I hope he doesn't try to pick me apart. We lock in. 4 p.m. on a Saturday, which obviously means coffee. Which obviously means drinks. Which obviously means coffee, dinner, and drinks. I keep my prep simple. Fake tan, mani-pedi, downstairs waxing, upstairs blow-dry, and double squared of Botox. I won't go to much effort. They say that turns guys off, right? I don't want to come across as too desperate. I'll wear something academic and low-cut. I wake up on Saturday feeling wired. Nauseous. Underwhelmed. And I wait for him outside the cafe. I wait for him across the street. I keep him waiting for 15 minutes. I put on dark glasses in case someone sees me. Holly pulls sunglasses from her bag and puts them on. I post hot selfies on Facebook so everyone can see me. Rachel snaps selfies on her phone. I leave just enough to the imagination for him to see. Marie unbuttons the top button of her shirt. I text Dan saying, I'm here wearing purple polka dots, smiley face, smiley face, smiley face, thumbs up, in case he doesn't recognize me. See, I may not possibly exactly look like my profile photo. It's my sister. 
she's 23 and a part-time model. Then this other girl in purple polka dots randomly arrives. She's waiting too. This could only happen to me. So I SMS, hi Stan, I'm the Miss Purple Polka Dots with the yellow carnation in her hair. And then my purple polka dotted doppelganger just ups and leaves. What if he thinks I made it all up? I frantically start texting, explaining everything. And just as I go to push send, I stop and I... Holly takes off her sunglasses. He arrives holding a rose. <laughs> what is this? The bachelor? Oh my god, a red rose. How romantic. He's waiting there, looking like a despondent florist whose shop has just been blown away in a hurricane. And the only thing he could salvage is the single rose he's left clutching. But he's hot. So hot. Mildly attractive. He says, hi, you must be Rachel. Holly. Marie. And he holds the cafe door open. Letting me in first. Like some cheesy try-hard. Old-fashioned gentleman who really just wants to check out my ass. The place is so kitsch. Quaint. Inappropriate for mentoring. With this awful plastic tables. Like you find in authentic restaurants in Milan and- Ikea. We sit in this enormous- Really sweet. Quite sour. Italian woman introduces herself as the owner? He seems kind of nervous with her. There's a familiarity between the two. She hands us these really cute- Incredibly tacky. Menus? We're eating- We're eating? Thank God. Thank God, because I'm so hungry I could eat a vegan. It's Italian. I don't do carbs. I go for the garlic bread as a starter, the lasagna for the main, and tiramisu for dessert. I order a double espresso. Salad, no dressing from the children's menu. And Stan. Stan. Stanley. Says, I'll have what she's having. having. And then he starts talking. Blabbering. Using a lot of super complicated words. He's obviously nervous. Very self-assured. Borderline narcissistic. And he's cracking jokes. He's cracking up. Is he on crack? We're flirting. In this awkward silence that's strangely intellectually stimulating. And I'm staring at him and thinking about my ex and how this time... I'll be strong enough to not go back to him. And I'm staring at him and thinking, why am I feeling these butterflies and not guilt? And I'm staring at him thinking, God, I hope this cold sore is not herpes. When I look at my phone, it's after seven. It's 23 past four. It's time to mentor the boy. Then suddenly he stands up, reaching into his pocket, pulling out a coin, walking over to this amazing retro piece of junk gaudy jukebox, asking me me to to dance. dance. Rachel dances exuberantly. Holly clicks her fingers, standing awkwardly. Marie dances with hands in her hair. A seductive smile and a beckoning finger. 
I excuse myself. Going to the toilet. toilet. To the ladies. To see if there's a window to escape from. And I'm sitting in the laboratory writing this gushy message to my... Explaining that I've been called back into work and that I'm stuck. With my ass wedged in the bathroom window, it takes two chefs to pull me free. He takes me dancing. He walks me to the bus. We go to happy hour after happier hour. And as the sun rises, I dangle my door kissing his drunken smile. That's smirking right at me, and I know he's about to. Thank God almighty that the bus is early and can put us out of our hideous misery. And as we reach my phone door, he turns to me. And as the bus door opens, he turns to me. And as he opens our taxi door, he turns to me. Something his face changes. You can almost see the thoughts jumping across his brain. Fear. Anxiety. Erectile dysfunction. He kisses me on the cheek. He embraces me in this beautiful, warm hug. He awkwardly shakes my hand like I'm the Queen of England and says, I'll I'll call call you. you. I'll call you. Then comes the day after. The day after. The day after. I totally get that the guy has to play it cool the day after. I'm out of the loop. Are women now supposed to initiate the day after? The day after, I delete his number, keep my mobile off, and consider changing phone providers. See, I think that any caller text the day after shows a guy's too keen. I spend the day checking my mobile repeatedly. By the evening, that prick hasn't contacted me. I'm feeding the baby when my phone rings. So I bring his profile picture, cut off his head, step away to a teddy bear, and squeeze sewing needles through his fluffy heart like a voodoo doll. And my phone rings. He's quite sweet. He's pretending to be old sugar sweet. When I eventually turn my phone on, I see five missed calls from Stan. He tells me about his mother-in-law. I didn't receive five missed calls from my ex in seven years. He tells me about his mother-in-law. The first messages are all apologies for being so nervous. Explained really nervously. And you can't sugarcoat rejection. Is he mentally disturbed to reject me? He says how he watched me from across the street as I panicked over the girl in purple polka dots. But it did make me remember how my husband used to make me feel. It did confirm my belief that all men are just Giant dicks on legs. That he saw this tenderness in me. And in that moment, he knew. I was his third date, and he just knew. Then he tells me about his mother-in-law. And I don't know. Maybe true love is two flawed people refusing to give up on each other. I think that was Aristotle who said that. Or was it Justin Bieber? The woman who served us in that Italian cafe where we met. That was his mother-in-law. She was the one who convinced Dan to get back out there and look for love again. That's what his wife would have wanted. She was only 24. His mother-in-law said I was a perfecta. Perfect. Apparently it was my appetite and signature dance moves. Holly grabs the phone from her hand. It's my ex. Lights. 
fade. Hello, welcome back. It is a bittersweet welcome back to season four of Lights Up because today is our last episode, episode 10. But to close out this season, we have an amazing friend and returning playwright, right, Christy? Absolutely. I think this is a wonderful note to go out on for season four. Um, so I, yeah, I'm excited about this interview. Yes. Today, we welcome back Adam Zudrich, who is our playwright for the hilarious One Night Stand that everybody just got to hear. Thanks for coming back, Adam, and welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks. It's always nice when you get invited back a second time. It means that things didn't go too badly the first time, right? So thank you. <laughs> thank you. And thanks for such a brilliant production as well. How good was that? Oh, my God. So much fun. Yes, yeah. we, got, we got to listen to Juanita Castro-Ocoa, Savannah Taedo, and Sadie Collins bring it to life. So what was it like hearing it with um, American accents, if you will? What, how, how much have you been able to um, see this piece produced? Um, amazing. Amazing. They did such a great job, especially for, um, you know, a podcast because, you know, I know it works really well on stage because it's kind of like a lot of banter and backwards and forwards, but to make it work as a podcast, um, Gary's done an amazing job there as well. Uh, just to bring it all together and have, um, you know, different characters and know who's speaking at each time and the rhythm and the timing and all that kind of stuff. So fantastic. Love the American accents. You do it so well in America. So <laughs> American, and we did have Juanita, who is of Latina origin too. So we had a, we had some difference there, for sure. But I know Christy, you were telling me you picked up on not only hearing a little different flavor, but some of the language in there too struck you as kind of Australian, right? <laughs> yes. So my my son is a big fan of Aussie. If you know who Aussie is for kids. Um, he always ends every episode telling kids to stay keen. And so when I, when, um, you know, I think it was too keen was the phrase that was in there. I was like, oh. <laughs> but what, one of the things I loved about this, Adam, was I felt like you could take this piece and put it in almost any culture right now. And maybe it's because of social media or technology or whatever, but it's relevant. And I just think that's so fascinating. Was, was that intentional with the, you know, the Cupid.com, the LinkedIn, the tones of it? Was that an intentional um, message in there? Of course, I'd like to say yes, but it probably wasn't. Do you know what I mean? So, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I wrote this, I actually wrote this a long time ago, uh, so long ago that you didn't see three women on stage. So I was watching this play in a short play festival by this amazing Australian playwright called uh, Peter Malecki. And um, these three women came on stage together. I was like, oh my goodness, why haven't I seen that before? Um, and so I thought, I've got, to, I've got to do that. And so I, I went for a walk and I was thinking, you know, what, what can I write? How can I get these three women on stage telling different stories? And that, that's how I got the idea. Um, and it just kind of flowed from there. So um, yeah, um, I was very lucky to see that play because otherwise I don't think I would have thought of the idea. Well, and last time we did talk with you about how you seeing, I think it was that particular festival, kind of shaped your mission statement as a playwright to start to include more women, more people over the age of 60. Um, you really were like, had this moment where you recognized we needed more, you know, gender, age, body diversity on stage, um, which 
we loved hearing because I think that's a that's a big push and to hear from a male playwright that's always an even greater acknowledgement of like thank you for contributing to that so how so you saw that long ago how has that thread been pulled um since that moment and since we last talked to you even has has anything happened with that yeah, yeah. So I've I've been really lucky because you know my plays are still being produced, which is amazing. Um, they're they're not as much as they used to be, which I also think is amazing as well. Ironically, I think it's it is a lot harder even since the last time we spoke as a male white privileged playwright to get work done, which I think is is a positive thing. Um, I've actually had to move into different areas. So I'm trying to write kids plays. I'm trying to direct my first. Uh, I've just directed my first film, so I I can see real progress for from where I'm standing anyway. And I think that's almost going to have a bit of a ripple effect, hopefully, throughout not theatre but also TV. So I'm actually really excited that uh, my career is ending right at the time as artificial intelligence is taking over and diversity is taking over. So hopefully I'll find a way to, you know, still be relevant and still write. But it's been really interesting because when I first wrote this play, it was really heavily produced um, in places like Dubai and Malaysia and, you know, UK. And I think it's had close to 50 productions. And then it went a bit quiet for a while. Um, and then recently I've noticed in the last sort of 12 months, it's started to kind of get really popular again. So um, I don't know if that says something about the world or if people just maybe need a bit of a laugh or an escape or they like the three different perspectives of the three different women. Um, whatever it is, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Um, but people are always surprised that it's, it was written by a, male, by a male. So that that's always kind of like a nice, lovely thing as well. So. Well, Dana, this is kind of piggybacking on a bit of a conversation you and I had before. Yeah. Um, Dana brought up the, I thought, beautiful point of this could even be gender switched where it's like three men and it's uh, what what is Dana kicked around some titles, which I love, like um, One Night Sandra or One Night, <laughs> which I was like, I thought that was a brilliant question. Uh, it is a brilliant question. And, and would you believe that I have done that there's been an all female version? There's been an all uh, male version. There's been a binary version. So I, I think I've covered every single version that there has been, and um, it's they've all been successful. And I, honestly, I haven't had to change that much. I literally just changed the the names and a few little words here and here and there, and, and it just works. Um, I get these requests from um, all sorts of directors, and um, one that was done originally actually in the Philippines. This really amazing guy said, um, "I, I want to do it as a kind of drag show with three male." Uh, drag contestants because that's kind of popular over here. And I, I wasn't too sure, but I, I trusted his vision and we worked really well together and it was amazing. It was hilarious and it still had those beautiful moments in it. So um, yeah, I, I sometimes I think the other versions are even stronger than the original. What that goes to prove in my mind and when Chrissy and I were having this pre-interview conversation, it's kind of like it's not centered around a female point of view or male point of view or like it's not a gendered point of view. It's how everyone feels about dating or making a connection with someone, right? Like you didn't, you said, I want to put three females on stage because they need to be seen and showcased. But what I love is you didn't make it like really female cliched. It was like what this woman liked, this woman didn't, this woman felt different. Like it just was about relating to somebody else, which is really the, the heart of the play. And that's what makes it more human and therefore accessible. Thank you. Thank you. That, that was definitely my intent. And, and I remember when we had a, a show in Sydney um, and all of my friends and family came and, and I've got pretty much all my friends are female. I've got a few token males in there, but they're, they're females. I've always connected better with, with women. You're superior. Um, I don't know what it is. Having, having little girls, I can just see that, um, 
you know, what the world does to little girls. Um, and hopefully that, that is going to change as well. But all, all these uh, women coming up to me going, oh, my God, you've stolen my life. Um, so that, that was I, I hadn't. Um, but, you know, the fact that they thought that I had stolen their experiences or the way that they sold the uh, saw the world, I thought that um, I was probably onto something there because they related to it so much. Well, if you have enough female friends, you've probably heard one or 1,000 horror dating horror stories to draw from, I'm sure. <laughs> I've lived enough as, as well, so, you know, we all have. <laughs> well, and that's one of the things in this story, I believe it's Holly, the ambiguity of, I mean, don't we have that ex that we, you know, that we couldn't let go of you know what I mean that is like you're toxic you're terrible and I just I can't get enough of you and that kind of thing and and I love the ambiguity of her journey there you know getting to the end it's it's her ex calling and you're just like I've been there I've been there (laughs) exactly as ourself and as a friend you know as as that friend who's given advice to that other friend like why do you keep going back and you can just see your friend making the same mistakes and mistakes and promising to change and then meeting somebody new and then going back to the same dark place again when you deserve better and all of those kind of things yeah so I I don't think it matters if you're old or young male female or or, you know anywhere in between Um, I think we've all experienced that and if you haven't um, I think you kind of need that anyway it it makes you appreciate the good things in life If, if you just I think it's always hard when you fall in love with a person that you liked in kindergarten because you know you, you don't sort of know what you're missing out on. I think you do need to get a bit sort of damaged along the way, and then you can appreciate um, life and relationships. I think anyway, that's how I justify all my early heartache. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. yes, I think that's awesome. <laughs> I was going to say that that twist. I'm so glad you brought it up, Christy, because I had the same response. Here, you think that. The, the twist is going to be like, oh, the woman who had a miserable time actually like there's a happy ending. There's a love story there. And then you threw the X in and I was like, oh, I just, again, I'm, I'm not asking you a question. I'm complimenting you, but I thought that was so well <laughs> executed <laughs> because, you know, we, we read a lot of these, especially one act plays, comedies. There's usually a little bit of a, we know there might be a twist or something coming to wrap up within 10 to 15 pages, but this was one I, I didn't see coming and I really appreciated. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. And, and I think with a lot of my plays, I've noticed that's something they do. I, I almost end with a question. Um, I, I want to sort of resolve it because I, I don't want people to watch a play and go, ah, but I want them to think about, you know, what would happen next? And I, and I do like that when people come up to me and go, um, you know, what, what happens afterwards? I've got no idea. I don't know. Like they didn't, they didn't tell me. Um, that's, that's where it ended for me as well. So um, if it did, I would have turned it into a, you know, a, a full length play or something. But also I, I like the fact that it just doesn't sort it sort of resolves, but it doesn't, but it's, that's real life, isn't it? Like, I think it's, that's more likely than the, uh, the beautiful happy ending, which you do get. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy. So it's worked out for me. So, um, but in, I, I know for a lot of people, a lot of experiences, you know, even, even if you are happy and if you've got those kids and living that dream life, you can still look back and go, yep, I, I remember those days and I don't miss them. Yes. You're so right that those things really do sort of test your mettle. And then when you, when you are faced with any kind of decision or it's like you, I don't know, I have found that I am so much more protective of and appreciative of what I have and fight for it just tooth and nail, which I don't think I would have had I not gone through those exact heartbreaking experiences that I think you're so right are so formative. They, they shape so much of how we think and treat other people and value what we have going forward. I thought that what a beautiful, beautiful point to bring up. And it's so universal, honestly. Thank you. And that's why I think it has sort of 
done okay in different places around the world because people just just kind of get it. I feel this has turned into a therapy session. This is amazing. <laughs> like, sh should should I be lying down or something? Do you guys do you guys uh, charge for this? This is beautiful. Let's do this once a week. <laughs> well, and I'm just gonna add to that feeling. So buckle up for a second. But <laughs> I, you know, Christy, you you hit on it when you said it's so universal. And Adam, you said this is perhaps why it has such appeal. Like you said, people can have a happy ending. It's not happy endings are not true fiction, right? They do exist, um, but they're rare and they're messy. And and by asking a question or or maybe putting a little twist or leaving some unanswered questions, it really gets closer to a human experience and it feels actually in a weird way less theatrical and less fictional, even though you have this beautiful theatrical device of having the three women talk at once and everything, then the ending kind of lands so close to the surface of the human experience that to me, it makes it like you lean in more to as an audience member to that ending. But I think that's really skillfully done and, and something that we see in your work that we really love. So we appreciate that. So you will not be replaced by robots because robots can't write things. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That, 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 let, let's all hope that's true. And neither will you because they can't interview like this. So, and if they do, we'll just, we'll form our own underground movement where I'll keep writing, you keep interviewing me and you can call me clever as many times as you want. It's fine. I can, I can handle it. <laughs> and then someday far, far in the future, they'll make an HBO dystopian show about us. <laughs> oh, you mentioned that the play had been produced in what, uh, Dubai and uh, where else internationally? Uh, Malaysia. Uh, it's been all over the UK. It's been uh, America. It's been here in Australia, New Zealand, um, Philippines. Okay. Um, so yeah. with some of those countries, obviously not like maybe English speaking, but definitely not the first language. My silly question is, does everyone understand the pun in one night stand? Does that ever have to get translated? <laughs> you know what? Most of the time I'm not there. So I'm going to say, yes, it is. And they love it. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember when I did this the first time uh, and, and I'll, I'll get to that because, um, you know, we have this, uh, you know, I've moved to somewhere called the, the sunny coast and it is literally the sunny coast. I used to live in Sydney, like this big, big city and um, I had lots of theatre and connections around there and um, it was a, a place called Script in Hand which is this amazing thing where you take a play, you put it in front of an audience and then you hear it and then you get to hear the audience reaction and then the worst part is as a writer you have to stand up and you get all the questions from the audience and that's like horrific when somebody asks, you know, you know, what's your motivation and what drive, all those kind of like arty questions which I can't answer which I deflect with humour. Um, but uh, I remember saying, you know, it's called One Night Stand and people started laughing at that. Um, so I knew that was a good sign, but also I got to, um, there was a few parts that didn't work. I, I can't remember, but there was something around the ending that didn't work. It just didn't, the audience didn't get it. So that, that allowed me to kind of tweak the ending. But what I always do with, um, you know, any production, I always um, pass on my details and I go, call me. This, this is for the director. This is for the actors. Um, if there's something in there, I'm, I'm not one of these people that goes, you know, you have to stick to every single word that I have written because, you know, I'm some sort of master of, of the, the written word. You know, if, if there is something which um, I think is important, I want to know your intent behind it and maybe we can work together. You know, I remember there was a, a vegan and there's that line in there. It's, it's not a classic line, but, you know, I'm so hungry I can eat a vegan. It's not, nothing I'm particularly proud of. Uh, but in context, it gets a laugh. Uh, but there was a vegan who was doing that that 
uh, line and just said, I just don't feel comfortable doing it. I'm like, let's change it. Let's, what, what would you like to do? And then we came up with something, you know, that she felt comfortable, comfortable with and it was still funny. Um, there's other times where people want to maybe change something which is important to the script and then I'll have to kind of work with them, you know, always to come up with some sort of resolution rather than going, this is not me. So um, I can definitely tell in different countries because I get the videos quite often, you know, things are funnier in different places. Um, but that's also the audience. You know, you, you'd know that, that sometimes you just get somebody in with a huge laugh and they just trigger the audience and everybody's laughing at everything. Um, and then other times nobody laughs for the first, like, you know, 15, 20 seconds. And then you're like, oh, my goodness, everyone starts sweating and everyone starts getting nervous. And it, it, it's, there's just so many different elements. Um, but I, I, I think it, yeah, I think it has worked because the jokes are sort of fairly universal, I would think. But I, I'm sure that some are stronger than others in different countries. But I've also said to people, use local dialect, you know, use local expressions. Like let's, let's mix it up. Let's, you know, keep it fresh and try to make what's going to work for your audience rather than me who's sitting in a house somewhere who's not going, who's only going to see it by video. What, what's going to be the best for the cast, the director and everyone who's actually paying to show up. Mm. Which again, makes it more relatable. And I will just say, because I think our listeners do know that to also prove your point that you never know what's going to be funny. I'm a vegan and I laughed out loud at the vegan line. I thought about it when I read it. <laughs> I thought it was hysterical. I was like, I actually want to use that now. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a bunch of people in this world who you don't want to, to annoy and they're the vegans you know, because they're all like calm and everything like that. But there, there must be pent up rage in there somewhere. So uh, <laughs> they're always so hippie and, you know, just, you know, balanced. Uh, no, but, uh, you know, there, there is things that there, there's um, there, there's that line, um, you know, I, I'm on crack or something like that. You know, he's, he's on crack. Yeah. And that there was somebody who directed it who said, you know, my friend had a bad experience with that and went into to rehab. I, I'm like, OK, let's take that away. So, you know, there's there's all sorts of stuff that, you know, is not going to affect the script um, or the story or we can find something different that's still going to you know bring out that moment or that laugh or whatever it is. So. That's an incredibly collaborative spirit that you have. And I, you know, we've interviewed quite a few people and just being involved in theater. There's just very few who are that forward. Maybe they are willing, but you are so forward in sharing that. I think that's incredible. So where did you, how did you develop this, like this open collaboration? You just seem, you, you don't seem overly protective of your work, which I think is a beautiful thing. You like, it's like you're wanting to share. Did you start that way? Has this developed through experience? I think it's when I left the womb. I think the, the nurses were very collaborative with no, humor. Exactly. I've had like a lot of jobs. I'm one of those people that have just, you know, done every single thing, you know, to find some sort of path and I'm still growing up and don't know what that is. So I, I've been, you know, I've, I played sport um, for a job. I've been a really dodgy musician. I've helped people find work. And um, through all those experiences, I've just found that working with people, um, and, you know, you know, people have got so many great ideas and, and it's so much easier to work with people than, than not. Um, and it was really interesting for me because I've never directed um, a film before. And I just, I got, I won this uh, competition uh, where I got to uh, submit my film. And they said, do you want to direct it? I'm like, 
uh, okay, I've never done it before. Um, and, and it was my real kind of uh, advantage and probably disadvantage as well. And I've, I've literally just done it. I'm doing the music at the moment and I'm so collaborative. Like I, I just like to do things with people. Um, and, you know, it's been really interesting to protect my vision, but also be collaborative at the same time with so many different people, with like actors and with like, you know, producers and with the music people um, and, you know, find that balance between, you know, I, I, I want to trust in what you're doing because you're so amazing and I'm, I'm new at this, but also I want to protect what it is that I have. Um, and I, I think most of the times I've got the balance right. Uh, but, you know, I just think if you're open to something and you hear people's ideas, like what have you got to lose? And I think if you handle it the right kind of way, um, I, I can't think of too many times where people have given me so many ideas and I've just, I've shut them down. You know, if anything I've said, brilliant, you know, a lot of things that I have taken for my scripts have come from the mouths of actors or directors. Um, I can think of some amazing moments in my plays that I didn't write, that, that just came from somebody else's idea. So um, why not be open to that? And at worst, you just say, you know, the reason that I've got this is because of this and help them to understand why. And if they're still not happy with that, then, you know, let's find something that works for both of us. Because at the end of the day, I, I want you as an actor to be on, on stage and be, you know, really comfortable and proud and be authentic in what you're saying rather than, oh, this moment's coming up and I don't want to do it, but I've got to do it. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm all for all for that. That, that makes me think of a John Maxwell quote where he says uh, most of his best thinking has been done by others. And I think that's a yeah. beautiful way of, it's just such a simple way of saying it. Um, okay. That's very, that's very cool, Adam. I love, I love hearing that mindset towards it. There's just, it, it brings a beautiful layer to your art I, that I think it's, that makes every production then so personal, you know, so to that, to that, not just that audience and those actors, but just like one extra layer of, of customization just for that moment. So that's really cool. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing about theater, isn't it? You can, you can do it like so many times, whereas the film, you know, that that's it. And um, that's what I've noticed. You do it and that's it. There's no, as much as I'd love to, I mean, I, I think I drove people crazy because I, I love to tinker and tweak and I'm very much a last minute person. And so they were like, we need the final version of the script out and you're up to draft 32 and we need it because things have got to happen. I'm like, okay, I, I will let go. I will finally let go. Here, here it is yours. Um, but with theatre, you can just you can just do that. You can keep doing it, can't you, and, and tweaking it and changing it. So, I actually was going to ask you, I'm glad you brought up the, the film script again, because we do know you as a playwright, largely. Um, and forgive me if you had mentioned this last time, but was this is this script your first film that you've done? No, it it all well, it kind of is. Um, it's it's based. It, it's my uh, script, slow dating. So it's another kind of like play that I've I've written uh, about an elderly woman who tries speed dating, um, and she goes on this kind of adventure with a stranger. And um, it's it's very. I, I entered this competition because I've moved to this place, like I said, the sunny coast, and I've made these amazing friends. Um, but I haven't met many sort of like arty people, and I don't need too many, but I just need a few kind of in my life. So I thought I'll enter it, get rejected and then offer to work on the film set for free. And I'd even written my rejection letter, like my thank you so much for considering. I had that because I'm a writer. I'm prepared for rejection. So I was completely unprepared and ill-equipped for like acceptance. I was like, I don't know how to handle this situation. Uh, and so, uh, they, yeah, they're like, we love it. Why don't you direct it? And so, um, you know, then, then I had a look at the script and just thought, how can I make it more visual? You know, that there was a lot of words going in there. And so I had something to start with. 
which was great. But I actually tried to write, and, and a lot of people don't know this about me. I tried to write film for 22 years. I, I went, I, um, he's going to, I'm going to be vulnerable for a second. Okay. So I actually, um, I, I failed English at school every single year and I failed my final exam. And then I went to university going, I'm going to be a screenwriter and I'm going to prove all of you wrong. And um, my university teacher said, after he got my first mark, I want to meet you. And I'm like, this is brilliant. You know, he's, he's found something special in me. This is incredible. And he said, your work is so bad, I can't mark it. Like, who says that to a first year student? Seriously. And then so for the next 22 years, I wrote film every single day of my life, every day, like, you know, birthdays, New Year's Eve, I would take three months off work and I would write. I didn't have one success in 22 years. I was probably the most unsuccessful writer in the history of, of writing for 22 years, like not, literally nothing, not even one thing. I came close a few times, but nothing. And then someone said, why don't you write a play? And I'm like, I don't even know what a play is. Like, you know, they forced me to do Shakespeare at school. I, I don't even know what that stuff is. And so... Um, I wrote a play, it got picked, and I'm like, I didn't even know what to do. It was a community theatre. And so I'm like, I got dressed up in a tuxedo and a bow tie to watch my play because I thought that's what you did. In Australia, it's like, you know, 40-something degrees. Everyone's in like shorts and singlets, uh, tank tops, I think you call them. Um, so, but, you know, I just loved it. I was like, oh, my goodness, this this is great. But then I still kept writing film because um, I was just like, I'm determined I'm, I'm not going to let them win. But then I wrote another play and that did really, really well. Um, and then I just, I sort of thought, you know what, that's it. Now, I've had a few like um, moments with writing film, just like short films that didn't sort of work out for, for a number of reasons. Um, and then when this came up, I just thought, you know, like I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot at directing. And um, it's, it's different, but I think some of the principles are still the same. It's just a bit more visual. Um, and it's amazing what you can do with things like music and, um, you know, angles and lighting and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we were on a you know, really sort of tight budget and only had a day and a half to shoot something. You probably need to do three days. But I managed to um, wrangle some amazing actors. Um, one flew in from Los Angeles and one flew in from um, New Zealand. So it was... Uh, yeah, it, it was incredible. I, I couldn't believe. I was just like, "Why are you flying from across the world to be in a seven-minute film?" So, um, but it was it was brilliant. And so it was an adaptation of your one-act play, "Slow Dating." That yeah. So your play became your film success. <laughs> well, <laughs> it became my film. I'll I'll keep you updated if it's my success. It, it's. Um, I'm literally doing the music at the moment. Then we've got the first screening in a couple of weeks. Then hopefully it'll get into a festival or, or two. Um, maybe we'll be speaking in a year from now and I'll be, you know, I've got this thing called the Oscars coming up. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, yeah, there's a thing called the red carpet. Or, I don't know. I'm going to have to buy a Pull new suit. Pull the uh, back out, you know. Exactly. And I'll be a lot more aloof and I will be that director that's talking about my process and my inner thoughts and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Um, I'm, I'm pretty excited so far. That's amazing. That's great. And I love that. Yeah. The, I mean, the true sense of that story, because I think we we touched on that. I think you definitely told us there was rejection early on um, when we spoke last time. But but I loved hearing that because it really reminds you of the true persistence of this is something that you have to get out of your system. Well, screw you. I'm going to keep writing anyway. <laughs> you know, I'm going yeah. <laughs> to do that. Like, this is a part of me. I can't that I can't shut off or, you know, so. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I like to, um, you know, sort of prove people wrong as well. That's, that's been one thing. And I think it's I've, my 
my grandfather was some sort of famous Russian communist who went on hunger strikes and just, you know, stood up for what was right. And I, I, for some, that's in my DNA somewhere. So I, I need to eat. So if I, if I don't make it to breakfast without eating, so there's no hunger strikes from me, but definitely the uh, determination side of things, um, that, that's in me, that fire. If, if somebody says I can't do something, I, I will um, go out of my way to, you know, try to make that happen. Mm, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, that, I'm that terribly curious person that wants to know why they thought your writing was so bad. I don't understand. I'm I like, know. I know. Well, to be fair, it probably was, um, you know, um, but like there's better ways to word that. And there's, the, you know, I, I've done a bit of teaching in my life and, I, you know, there's times where, you know, uh, things aren't great or even I can th even think on my film um, set where there was this amazing, lovely person and he, he had this part where he was literally concierge and he had one word to say and he had to just greet the actors that were coming. And that was his, and he's practiced for three days on this thing. He's like, you know, I've got this whole routine of, you know, I take, down, take off my glasses and I look up and I move this eyebrow and then I type one key and I've spoken to my acting coach and we've got all these different approaches. And as he was telling me, I was like, that's not what I want. Like, this is the, you know what I just, you know, I said to him, you know what I want? I need you to do nothing. Like I, I, I actually, actually need you to do, he's like, oh my goodness. I've never thought of that before. That's so brilliant. But then, then of course, I, I didn't want to crush his idea. You know, I explained to him why nothing. And I also said, you know what, once we get the nothing, I love your idea. I, I think it's brilliant. So let's get, let's get this and then let's film yours. And then in the edit, let's see, you know, what works best. Cause I don't know, maybe the stuff that you came up with. So, you know, it's very gentle, even though I, I didn't see the same place that he was coming from. He felt confident and, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe his way would have been better than the one I had in my head. Um, but then at least he goes away and he had such a great experience through that and he really enjoyed it and his confidence was, you know, lifted and all those kind of brilliant things that come with it. So I just think when, when you've got a student who's, you know, I must have been pretty bad for him to say that. <laughs> I can't imagine that's a line he's delivered too many times in his career, hopefully. Um, but there is there is gentler ways to say that. You can always find something good within the terrible and be positive about something or steer me in a different direction or, you know, mentor me. Or There's, there's a million different options than refusing to mark my work, I would say. What made you so determined and lean in so much? Because certainly people have had their their dream, their vision, whatever you want to call it, knocked off the horse with a lot less. I, I think that's that's something that's been in me for from such a young kid. You know, being a, a, a soccer player, I think you guys call it football um, over here. You know, you get you just there's so much rejection. And again, I remember um, being picked for you know going through this process to be picked for a team where there was like 300 kids, and it got down to two groups of 15 and then again they seem to single me out for some reason i don't know why and the, and the coach he broke the team into one group of 15 another group of 15 and he said i want everyone to look at this kid here and he pointed at my legs and he said um see those legs they're bow legs he will never play a professional game of football in his life go you know that's how, that's how they treated a boy um and again that that just it just lit a fire in me and every morning i woke up and, and i trained and um, I just, and I, and I get it. I think a lot, there, there would be people who would just go away and cry and go, that's it. But for me, it's always been the opposite. I've always just been really fired up. Um, and I think, you know, in sport, um, and in anything artistic rejection is just such a amazing, uh, leveler, but also part of what you do. You know, you would have spoken to John maybe, um, who is like, for me, he's, he's 
you know, I don't like to single out any writers, but this 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 person is going to be a superstar. His name is going to be up in lights every single where. And he just, you know, every time we're in like a bit of a writer's group, he's always like, you know, uh, I've won this or I've got this production going and I'm so happy for him. I'm just, you know, I do a little cartwheel for him every single time. But he's just, his inbox is filled with rejection as well. as like mine. Like people see all my productions. You know, I think I've got, I don't know, 10 or 15 or something coming up at the moment. And that that's incredible. I'm so lucky. But I get so many rejections every single day and um, some of them still hurt. It definitely gets easier as you get, as you get older, but they still hurt. Um, you spend a lot of time putting in things and you, you know, you write to people and they're really interested or productions that almost happen. And I don't know, I just, you just have to learn to wear that a bit, but also I use that as a bit of motivation just to keep going. Um, I definitely find writing a bit harder than sport because with sport, you just go out and run. You just you just just do things hard and you treat your body harder. But with writing, when you when you get down and your confidence gets down and you sit in front of the computer and you're just like you're just filled with all this self doubt, like I, I don't think I can do this. Um, that's tricky. That's tricky. So that that's why I always have like um, I'm always writing maybe five or six or seven different things. So if one isn't working, like a comedy, I might go to a drama. Um, you know, I'm I'm trying to write a book at the moment as well. You know, so I can just move from one thing to the next to the next. But I won't I won't just stop. Even if I go for a walk and I just write in my head, I'm still I'm still writing. You've given us tangible ways of how you enact or act upon this persistence. I'm going to write a novel. I'm going to write a drama if I'm stuck in the comedy, right? But it also just speaks to me that this is such a part of you that you refuse to let it die, which I think Christy and I relate to deeply as artists as well. And I'm also so glad that you mentioned John Maybe because they were our very first guest this season. And you both have such an amazing, positive, effusive, warm, welcome energy. So it's amazing that we're bookending this season with the two of you and that you brought them up um, too. And that you're, it makes such sense to me that the two of you are friends because um, I see such similarities in your warmth and your openness. And I think John even said to us at one point, like, oh my gosh, this is this is deep. We're getting vulnerable. Like the two of you <laughs> go there with us and you're that kind of, you're those kind of people. And so um, I that makes me smile. And I hope our listeners are smiling to know that the two of you are friends in this artistic world because that makes sense to me. <laughs> we're, we're pen pals at the moment. We're electronic pen pals we've never met. Um, but I, I would absolutely love to... To meet face to face one day, I think that would be amazing. But you know, I just I love following him, love chatting, and uh, he's, uh, the work that they create is just amazing. It's yeah, in awe, complete awe. So I can't remember if we asked you this question the last time we interviewed, but it's it's a question that I've started asking this season. How did you find out about Lights Up? Um, well, I think originally the first time it, it probably through, um, either my writer's group or maybe a post I do. One of the things about being, um, you know, a writer, especially in this kind of area is like part of your job is literally hunting down opportunities and applying. It takes up so much time. Um, so, and I've also heard great things, you know, I'm in a little writer's group. So when we see something, we all have a little bit of a chat. Should we apply for this house? And what's your experience? And you, you hear nothing about positive, positive experiences. So, um, and I haven't been disappointed. I want to follow up with a question. You told us last time that a lot of times your ideas come from stories when you tell your children bedtime stories, ah, yeah. make up bedtime stories. 
So I just wanted to do a follow-up and find out how are how are those going and have you had anything really original spring from that since the last time we spoke to you? Especially the launch into children's theater. So maybe that goes hand in glove. Who knows? <laughs> it does. It does. And I can't remember if I told you this last time, but um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, people that didn't hear that last time, I, I, I do a thing which my dad did for, for me, which was when I go to bed, uh, my children can say any idea and then I tell them an original story. And we have a few that we might go to every now and then, but literally that's it. They get to hear that story and then it kind of disappears into the world. And occasionally I get an amazing story come out of that. Um, there was one where I told last time where my, my little daughter teared up and you, know, you don't like to make your daughter cry, but it was, it was such a beautiful story that I wrote it and that, that's gone on to be produced. So that's been fantastic. Um, there was one that I started telling and we've actually, cause they're a bit older now. We now do a thing where we do a line each. So, um, we all tell the story together. So it's, it's, it's really beautiful actually. So, you know, I'll do a line and then my daughter who's, who's, um, way, way too talented. Um, she actually had her first play. Did I tell you this? Had her first play produced when she was three and a half years old. Like no. it took me seriously. I was, I was like 40, you know, 20 something years of rejection she wrote one play and it got produced in America. And I'm like, oh my God, who am I living with here? This is amazing. And I'm like, what's next? She's like, no, I've done it now. Moving on to the next thing. So, <laughs> she needed rejection is what she needed. She needed yes. rejection. Um, but we started doing one of those stories um, together and I, I, I said, okay, well, maybe we can come up with something together as a bit of a collaboration for your, for your second one. And I, we started doing it and um, I, I just, it was, it was too good. And so um, when, when she went to bed, um, I just wrote all night. And then I said to her the next morning, I'm so sorry, I've just taken that for myself. So that's that's my first uh, children's play that I've written. It's way too complicated. It's way too deep. The themes are just like uh, there's patriarchy, there's uh, trauma, but it's all weaved in with a light touch. No one's ever going to produce it because it's so deep, I think. But um, if they ever do, it would be amazing. Um, so, yes, I have stolen from my child. So I probably should credit her somewhere in there. But, um, uh, yeah, so they, they definitely definitely inspire me all the time. And um, they're, I can't remember I told you this, but they're terrible sleepers. And so I'm often woken up at three o'clock in the morning and that's where I get a lot of my ideas when I can't fall asleep. So they inspire me in all sorts of ways. I was hoping to hear they'd be involved in the story time now. So yeah, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> they definitely are. They definitely are. We, they, we do it every single night. Um, and if we, if we don't, because we're in a rush, it's, it's in the car on the way home. So we have to have our story time. I love yeah. imagining that as like a legacy that continues, you know, that you, you pulling that down from your dad and then them pulling it down from you. Even I just think that's, ah, that's awesome. Those are, those are priceless moments. Yeah. Hopefully it's not a robot when it's their next children and they set up some sort of device <laughs> and, you know, R2D2 sitting there like telling their story. So they're really stuck on AI today. You guys. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> it's topical. It's topical. Exactly. Just like last time, in case we have any listeners who are joining us for the first time or people who listen to episodes out of order, we want to hand over the metaphorical microphone to you for you to list out any social media handles, websites. Um, If you're on New Play Exchange, places that our listeners can find you, we'll give you that. And then Christy and I will ask our um, three wrap-up questions that you have done before, but you're free to have your answers changed or maybe you forgot your answers. So beautiful. Yeah. You know, I, when it comes to um, social media, I, I'm still on my Hotmail account. I'm so bad at this. I, I've literally got it into something close to the 21st century. Um, I've got my website, which is my name, um, Adam Zudrich, S Z U D R I C H. 
um, and then, you know, there's my email on there. Find, you'll be able to find, just Google me and you'll be able to find me. And I'm always happy to answer questions. And, you know, if, if anyone's got a, a community theatre out there as well, I'm always very to, willing to support by, you know, offering my scripts. If you don't have any budget, like just, just get in contact and, you know, we can work out something that's free. So all that kind of stuff. All right, I've, I've said everything. I've embarrassed myself. I'm an old man who doesn't understand technology. There you go. Are you on New Play Exchange? Yes, I am with one play. <laughs> you got to get more on there then. I know. I'm only on there so I can read John's scripts, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, John, John, we know John told us, and he's listened to every episode, so I can't wait for, for them to hear these uh, shout-outs, I believe. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I can't remember these three questions. I feel pressure now. Um, I, rem I remember one of them was really hard from last time. Oh, what? Yeah, one threw me. One was about some sort of something. If there was a fire, you have to rescue something. Or was that it? Oh, dang. Okay, well that's question number three. So don't worry. That's one. Yeah, you got two questions before that. You oh, no. Okay. <laughs> I'll try to word that one differently. That way, it's not so. Um, if there's a flood, we get we get a lot of rains here. Make it a flood. Make it a flood. <laughs> Call it a flood. Okay, first question. Do you have a word that you love to say, you love to hear? It maybe just gives you some kind of delight or um, you like to use it when you write. Just something, just a word right now that could be maybe a favorite word. Um, it's cliche, but I like the word love um, just because I think it's, it's almost demeaned sometimes, you know, especially in English. I think when you say love in different languages, it has like a beautiful, like, you know, in French or, you know, I speak a little bit of Swedish. It's such a beautiful word, but in English, it's just, it's so cliched because it's been through so many bad sitcoms and everything like that. But I think with, um, in my life um, and with children and being married, I think it's an important word. And I actually wrote it in my play last night. Um, I'm writing, trying to write something new. So, um, and it sounded okay. It sounded okay. So I think it's a word that's probably not used enough or not lived enough. That's such an Adam answer and I love it. <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> um, okay. And I almost want to say you had something just as beautiful to answer last time. And now I'll have, we'll have to go back. Um, I really should have done my homework and listened to it. Really. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. We should have, but sometimes we like to be surprised because we want you to answer in the moment, you know? Yeah, um, I, I hate I hate watching myself as well. Like, you know, when you hear, you know, you'd be used to hearing your own voice, but me, it's just, you know. No, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Um, second question is, do you have a favorite or most loved, adored, nostalgic place or setting either in your life or in your plays, however you choose to interpret that. I really love this new place that I've moved to. I've moved from a, a big city to like this little coastal town and I live um, right near the beach. And um, people always say, you know, money can't buy where you live. And I'm, I can't, the bank can, like a huge loan can buy where you live. And um, there's just at sunset, um, you know, we, we as a family try to, you know, have our dinner early and go for a walk and just, it just, deletes everything in that day you know we all hold hands and we go for a walk on the beach and the sun setting and um it just feels like everything has slipped away from the day uh, until someone falls over and trips on an oyster or a rock and then you know <laughs> all their calm is broken uh but it, it's it's quickly established and you know sometimes we'll see turtles swimming sometimes we'll see a dolphin and i just it is is the most beautiful relaxing calm place on earth and i just feel 
like it, it's become my new home. When I fly to Sydney now, it, it doesn't feel like, it feels like a big, you know, big city, um, but this is my home. And I just, I love that I'm here with my kids and my family and started a new life here. So um, yeah, that's, that's my special place now. That's a wonderful answer. It's, it sounds magical, tripping oysters and all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it flows so nicely with the answer from the first question. So, all right. So third question, I'm going to, so flood, we're going with the flood analogy. <laughs> Do you have a keepsake or an item in your life that's particularly precious? So if your house were flooding, you would be grabbing it and taking it with you. <laughs> After the kids and family are all there. Of course. Well, I'm, I'm so prepared for this flood that I've built an ark and collected animals two by two, so I'm ready to go, you know. Um, but <laughs> um, I, I have two things, and one I remember I said last time, and one's a new thing. Um, one is this little bunny that my, my little girl used to carry around as a child, um, this little wooden um, bunny, like her first little toy, and she's, she's become obsessed with bunnies as she's grown older. So that sits on my little mantelpiece and it's just this cute little wooden toy. And then my, my boys, you know, boys are very different to girls. Um, I've noticed they have different strengths and uh, different volumes and different, you know, progression rates, uh, the way that they kind of evolve. And so, um, you know, when my daughter used to go to school, she used to bring me back this, and oh, kindy, kindergarten, this, you know, beautiful artwork and all this kind of stuff. Uh, it was only recently and he's, you know, five now that he brought home a cork, like the top of a, a wine bottle that he'd colored in, in texture. Um, and he said, he came home and said, daddy, this is for you. I made this for you. And so that was the first thing that he's ever given me. So now that stand that sits right next to the bunny. And um, I'm going to carry that forever because it's the first thing he's given me. And I think it's really beautiful. So, and I love it. I would rescue those two things. Seriously, like all my answers have this beautiful <laughs> undercurrent to them. So it's beautiful answers. Yeah. Thank you. Love, yes. Love. Truly. And you made us misty-eyed. You've made us laugh and you've made us misty-eyed. And we all shared a few things on the couch that is lights up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is lights up. Uh, I, I, I can't thank you enough for, for being our, our closer this season. Um, and we're so grateful, as we said, to have you return and to have you a part of the Lights Up family. So thank you so much, Adam. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theater company located in Southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the expressed written consent of the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or a reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ETC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast.
Ladies Tennessee is pleased to announce that the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga and the Lights Up Podcast are grant recipients through the Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan grant program. A program made possible by the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, approved by the U.S. Congress and signed into law on March 11. Because of this program, Humanities Tennessee is able to provide $941,454 to 91 organizations throughout the state. The purpose of SHARP grants is to support jobs in the humanities, keep humanities organizations open, and assist the field in its response to and recovery from the needs created or exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. These grants may focus on humanities projects or leveraging operational support stemming from the devastating impact of the coronavirus pandemic. They may also help organizations plan for the future and begin the long process of response and recovery to the pandemic. ETC and the Lights Up podcast would like to thank Humanities Tennessee and the National Endowment for the Humanities for this amazing opportunity.